Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. This is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Spring festival season is upon us, so on this week's Louisiana Eats, we're going to get you ready to be the host or hostess with the mostess. No one knows how to throw a party quite like Julia Reed. Julia joins us to give us her very best advice for how to throw a party where you and the guests will all have a ball. Speaking of balls, when it comes to throwing a party, weddings are as big as they come. And the remedy room is at your service to make sure your guests' pre-wedding revelry doesn't interfere with the big day. Dr. Mignon Mary tells us how her infusion therapy keeps the city hydrated and healthy, following the lead of her father, a pioneer in the field of IV vitamin therapy. And when it comes to keeping family legacies alive, Tom Bullitt's got quite a tale. Tom's great-great-grandfather, Augustus Bullitt's bourbon, is the stuff of legends. Just prior to the Civil War, Augustus died while transporting barrels of his Kentucky whiskey to New Orleans, and his legendary bourbon died with him. Luckily, he left behind a recipe that Tom Bullitt used to create his own legendary spirit, Bullitt Bourbon. Let's raise a glass and enjoy the party on this week's Louisiana Eats. I'm Dr. Mignon Mary. I'm the owner of The Remedy Room. Following in the footsteps of her father, Dr. Charles Mary Jr., a pioneer in the field of IV vitamin therapy, Dr. Mignon Mary has taken his practice of infusing vitamins into the bloodstream to new heights. The Remedy Room not only carries on this tradition, but it's also mobile. They'll come to you. We spoke to Dr. Mary about how beneficial IV therapy can be to our total wellness profile. Dr. Mary, it is always such a treat to get to sit down and talk with you about all things medical and otherwise. What type of medicine do you practice? So I am an internist by trade. I've finished at LSU Medical School in internal medicine. Um, but I practice more of a holistic type of medicine where we're really focused on trying to get to the root cause of the disease and really more of an educational style of medicine where it's more preventive, um, teaching people how to keep from coming to the doctor, really. Um, we have struggled to kind of 
escape from this hangover nomenclature that everybody thinks that that's all we do. It's funny. How, how long have you had the Remedy Room so now? We've been open five years. And when I opened, the original intent really was that I, I come from this family of physicians. Okay, my dad has been, you know, he's, he's known in this city. He was a director of Charity Hospital. But one of the bigger things that he did is the wake of people that he's healed because he focused on nutrition and because he used high doses of vitamin C and intravenous nutrition in the office setting, but as well as in the hospital setting, he had great success, all right? And he, he really did a great job of teaching people how to stay well. And so I wanted to expand on that. And so we always had an IV room in his office. That just was second nature to me. Every office he had had a room full of patients getting an IV. And we just flipped the model. So we made the giant room with where everyone was getting an IV. And then we have some small rooms in the back where we can have our private visits with patients. But I wanted to have a place where we could teach people that IV vitamin C is an option to help them to get well, to help them to um, support themselves when they are um, dealing with chemo or radiation, to help them pre and post-op before they have surgery, after they have surgery, because without vitamin C, we can't make collagen. Without vitamin C, we have a lot of oxidation and and damage to the cells. And so it is so very powerful. And so that is my original intent. Now, we do treat hangovers, and we do an excellent job. We get people well, and the turnover, you know, to be able to have someone walk in falling apart, and in an hour later, they're back on their feet and as happy as can be. And not only that, back to whatever they were doing for that day. And a lot of brides, a lot of grooms, a lot of family members of those big events that you just cannot afford to miss, right? So we have a really nice niche of people that we help, but it's so much more than the hangover. So I want to try to expand people's minds that we it's an easy thing for them to grasp, right? And it's a really sexy thing to talk about, that people love to talk about hangovers and getting drunk and all that. It's the cavorting. But the better thing that I think we can talk about is it's more than just hydration. It's about nutrition. It's about, you know, prevention. It's about boosting the immune system so that you don't have to go to the doctor, right? So that you take the power back as the patient. So really, for me, I opened it to educate. And then secondarily, you know, the hangover is, again, it's less than 50% of what we do. It's very interesting, too, that um, this isn't like one size fits all. When you work with people you do it with incredible scrutiny on a one-to-one basis. Explain a little bit about how you would diagnose what sort of IV treatment you might recommend for someone's issue. Right. So similar to like an urgent care type of setting where you walk in, we're not their primary care provider. So we're going off of what the patient is telling us. And we take that to be the truth, depending on what medicines they're on and depending what ailments they have. So if you come in, we have a large group of people who come in when they have a cold or when they have um, upper respiratory congestion. And so in the similar fashion that if they came to the urgent care and if they need steroids or an antibiotic, we will give that. But more often than not, what we're trying to do is, like I said, boost their immune system. We'll usually use some vitamin C and depending on the dose, depends on how sick they are. Um, We add B vitamins, we add trace minerals, we add things like glutathione, which are huge for the immune system. We're making sure that their vitamin D levels are up to par, and we're trying to help them to arm their immune system so that that portion of the immune system can wake up and then fight whatever infection is going on, right? But this is a more than just one and done. You know, if the earlier we can catch people, the better. And so I still am struggling with letting people know the power of vitamin C and what it can do. So when I'm picking through what I would choose for you, 
you. It depends on what your symptoms are. So we see patients who are sick. We see patients who have migraines, you know, and they've tried everything. You know, they've been on every prescription drug. A lot of times we have success with magnesium. Um, magnesium is a nature's calcium channel blocker that allows us to relax the blood vessels and give more flow to the brain and to all the organs, right? So it's so powerful. It can stop uh, an asthma attack. It can stop a woman from contracting her if she's in the middle of you know preterm labor. We can calm those things down. We can lower blood pressure. We can improve you know certainly the migraines and the headaches. And then we teach them about keeping up with their magnesium levels when they leave the remedy room because back to the prevention part is I I can't control what people do outside, but we know that drinking heavily, which in this city is an awesome thing that people do, but it's costing us because we lose a lot of magnesium in our urine. And when we eat sugar, we lose a lot of magnesium. And when we're stressed out, we lose a lot of magnesium. And if you're a woman, you're at higher risk. So these are four big reasons that a lot of us have going on that are going to make us deficient. Okay, well, when we're deficient in mag, what happens? We are constipated. We're having leg cramps. We're having headaches. Um, You could have more asthma attacks than you normally do, right? So those those sorts of things that if we can just educate, you might have insomnia, right? You might have a better night's sleep if you took some more magnesium. I have patients who come in with anxiety attacks, panic attacks, and all we do, Poppy, is teach them about mag. Now, they might come in for the IV the one time, but then we've instructed them on, look, these are the things that you can take over the counter. And it's a lot less costly than some of the prescription agents, and it works really well. Yeah, it's le- and it's magnesium. It's not like a psychotropic drug. It's nice because there's so many deliveries, right? So for me, the reason we do IV and the reason why I think it's superior to other methods of delivery is that we're living in a very toxic world that we're getting exposed to a lot of poisons, right? And so the GI tract is not liking that. But the foods that we eat are processed. The foods that we eat are full of sugar and full of inflaming things. So instead of saying you are what you eat, we need to now start to talk about you are what you absorb. You are what you take in from what you eat, right? And in addition, you are whatever that animal ate. Eight. Mm. Does that make sense? So if that cow is eating, you know, things that it's eating corn and candy bars and things that they do to fatten these cows instead of grass, okay, we're going to have a problem. And then if that grass has all kinds of pesticides and things, okay, you're eating that too because yeah, the fat and, that you're taking in from that is important. And in the milk. Yeah. Oh, the milk is very inflaming. So, so what we do is, you know, a lot, oftentimes people come in in acute issues and then we, we teach them. Sometimes they come back and they might need multiple treatments. Um, and we adjust the IVs based off what they need. So if someone comes in and their blood pressure is a little bit elevated, I can add magnesium, I can add B6, I can kind of change the concoction a little bit based off what they need. I know you have so many amazing success stories. I'd love to hear about some folks whose life you've changed with things as simple as vitamin C and magnesium. Well, we have our fair share of people who... um, who have who happen to have cancer. We don't say cancer patients. We say patients who have cancer. And cancer, what I'd like to do in the future, and hopefully you're helping me do this, is to spread the word that this is not a death sentence. This is going to be something that's just going to be like, you know, very common very soon. It's one in three. It'll be one in two. So what we need to th- start thinking about is this is a wound that's not healing. This is a part of the immune system that is getting away with not being recognized and it's allowing to proliferate and grow. Okay. What we need to do is talk about changing the environment of how that cancer began. And let's do something different, right? Instead of attacking the cancer, let's talk about arming the immune system and doing the positive. So we have a, a patient with cancer who uh, one of my staff asked him, okay, well, what number chemo are you on? And we straddle the care. So we are giving them the vitamin C before 
the chemo and after the chemo. And the reason is we want to protect those healthy cells. So the chemo is not selective to just the cancer cells. It's, it's hurting everything, right? So in an attempt to try to reduce the tumor. So we want to protect you as much as possible. And so at the end of the day, we're asking him what chemo he's on. He had a very severe type of cancer, pancreatic. And he says, well, they've never gone this far with anyone. This is the longest they've ever been able to go because he's been doing so well, right? So we have patients who certainly breast cancer, they don't lose their hair. That's not everyone. I'm not saying this is definitive, but we have patients who just have, you know, a better quality of life. And so when we have someone come in who has something really chronic like that, we say, look, we're not treating the cancer. We're treating you. We're trying to support you in every way possible. And that includes more than just taking IV vitamin C. That includes, you know, how are you sleeping? Are you moving your bowels? Is there anything we can do to pull any other toxins that are easily accessible out? Are there things that we can do to help you to relax, you know, that you can de-stress? Because there's multiple spokes to this wheel. And so we don't pretend that IV vitamin C is the only thing you do, but it really needs to be something that people think of as an adjunct to do alongside these other conventional modalities so that we're giving you the best shot at success, right? Because as we know, we're all going to develop something, hopefully, if we can prevent and teach people about diet and teach people about how to de-stress and teach people to breathe and exercise. Okay, we haven't gotten to do that yet. I mean, we're telling people, but they're not listening. But 80% of these diseases are lifestyle, right? So mm. our goal, and I think, you know, It's more than just the hydration, Poppy. So the IV, it's the nutrients, right? It's giving the cell what it needs. And when we give the cell everything it needs and the body all the nutrients it needs and we unblock the pathways, we take away the toxins, then it can do what it needs to do. Okay, but a lot of us are deficient nutritionally, like vitamin D levels are very low. That raises our risk. And so um, I try to arm people with knowledge and empower them with the ability to fight for themselves and to educate them so that they know what to do, that they don't feel helpless, and that, you know, your doctor is on your team, but you are the advocate for yourself, right? And so I could go off on tangents and clearly have, but I I love what I do, and these people, we are getting well. I mean, on a positive note, we have, I've been invited to numerous weddings where, you know, the person wouldn't have been able to go, the mother-in-law, the bride, the groom, those are very fun stories, and to be able to save someone you know, we, they call us literally right up until the wedding sometimes. <laughs> it's oh. kind of, you know, and we're, we're glad to be able to help. Um, you know, just people walking in and basically feeling and looking miserable and walking out with a smile on their face saying, I'm, I feel great. I'm going to go eat a burger. That's, I mean, we've had success. It's great. <laughs> well, you're such an inspiration. <laughs> and you. I can't wait to see what next discovery you get <laughs> off on a tangent about because few, yeah. they're always <laughs> good ones. So thank you, Dr. Thank you Mary. so much. For thank you for having me us. on. Dr. Mignon Mary, founder of The Remedy Room. Maybe back, dressed in black, silver buttons all down her back. Hello, tipsy toe, she broke a needle and she can't soap, walk in the dark. How can you avoid getting your guests too inebriated at your party? Stay tuned, and we'll have some good advice for you about that when we come right back. Walking bird dog. 
I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and with support from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award-winning barbecued oyster poor boy and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish caught and served daily. Lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. How can you avoid getting your guests too inebriated at your party? First, have some non-alcoholic drink options, like a punch with no alcohol, that alcohol could be added to at the guest's discretion. It would surprise you how many people will choose to drink the unspiked punch while appearing to party with the best of them. Make sure there's ample water, both still and sparkling, easily accessible to guests. Making a habit of drinking a glass of water between each cocktail makes a huge difference in alcohol consumption. And for goodness sake, encourage designated drivers, and remember there's always a safe ride home in a taxi. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. No one knows how to eat, drink, and make merry quite like Julia Reed. Born in the Mississippi Delta, Julia has written extensively about Southern food and hospitality for New York Times, Newsweek, and in her regular column in Garden and Gun magazine. In her book, But Mama Always Put Vodka in Her Sangria, Julia offers a number of stories from a lifetime of rollicking culinary escapades, along with some tips on how to throw the ultimate party. When we spoke with Julia... I began by asking her to share the story behind the book's scintillating title. When my editor came up with that as the title, I thought, oh, Lord. I was telling him the story, and he said, that's got to be the title. And the story goes like this. I was still writing the food column in the New York Times Magazine, and I had gone to Spain and fallen instantly in love with the cuisine. And so I smuggled all this stuff out of there, and I wanted to come back and try to recreate some recipes and I was going to write a column on Spanish food. Every time I did a column like that, I would test the recipes on my friends first. And so I called up my good friend Elizabeth McGee Cordes and said, I'm having a Spanish dinner party. And she's like, great, I'll bring Mama sangria. She's got this great sangria recipe. And her mother was my mother's best friend, and we all grew up together in Mississippi. And anyway, so I'm like, fine, fine, I had no real interest in sangria i'm not even <laughs> sure i'd ever made any you know whatever i just sort of vaguely knew it was in it which is like red wine and sometimes a little cognac and grand marnier and some fruit so anyway she brings these fruity looking nice pictures of sangria and we put them on the table and i put out some more d'oeuvres and i go in the kitchen and i had not been in that kitchen like maybe 20 minutes uh-huh. to finish cooking and i come outside and 
people are like making out with each other. I mean, it's <laughs> like, you know, they're falling down in the bushes, like doing, doing totally inappropriate things, talking too loud, you know, laughing too hard. And I'm like, Elizabeth, she was still standing. Uh-huh. Um, I said, Elizabeth, what in the world did you put in that sangria? And she's like, a liter of vodka. <laughs> and like, and oh, so, the secret ingredient. I know. And my mouth just fell open. And she's looking at me like I'm the one that was crazy. Like, of course she put a liter of vodka in the sangria. And so when I still didn't pick up my jaw off the floor, she said, well, Mama always put vodka in her sangria. Well, you are a woman who can and has lived all sorts of places in the world. But... You grew up in the Mississippi Delta. I did. And, you know, I have to say, reading about your life there, it really sounded like an inordinately fun place to grow up. It was really fun. And part of the reason is because, I mean, you know, you're sitting around in the middle of the Mississippi Delta. There's not a whole lot to do all the time. Pretty much as soon as the place was settled. I mean, I found some diaries of people in the 1800s going to these like four and five day house parties and dancing. And, you know, the waters came up. So they're just raising the piano to the second floor and that kind of stuff. So it's there's still there's, there's still a little bit of that kind of mad abandon to entertaining well, down there. Your mama and her friends, they really did know how to have a good time there. And so you grew up observing that and then I later became sort of a participating member of that <laughs> coterie, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we had there was a lot of political change and stuff going on when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s and uh the Delta was sort of a safe haven. It was not quite as violent as the rest of the state and mm-hmm. we had a great newspaper, Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper, you know, Hunting Carter, the second who was originally from here or from Hammond wrote editorials that won in the Pulitzer Prize for preaching racial tolerance long before it was in vogue. And so we had a lot of people coming to town and you have to give them a party. Yeah, That's when I decided course. I wanted to be a reporter because every time a reporter came to town, they had a huge party for him. And, you know, he'd wake up off the floor in, in our living room and I would be catching the school bus or something. And this guy would be sort of <laughs> sort of rearing his hungover head and writing like on the typewriter in those days, you know, Dateline Little Rock. And I'd be <laughs> sort of smart aleck kid like, aren't you supposed to be there? Yeah. He's like, shut up, kid. So I'm thinking, well, this is a great way to make a living. <laughs> well, I have to say the thing I think that was definitely the most intriguing and certainly shocked me was your chapter entitled Burger Heaven. Okay. <laughs> if somebody had bet me a million dollars who worked at McDonald's, you would have been dead last. Now <laughs> explain that. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, I still have my polyester pantsuit with the zip front and the golden arches on it. I want you And to you know. loved it. Well, it was fun. I mean, okay, so what <laughs> happened was, yes, okay, so I wrecked my mother's car. Uh-huh. And I was 14. You That's what comes with all that partying. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, it was the daytime. I was actually sober. And, you know, I'm 14. But uh, I was not as good of a driver as I thought, apparently. Anyway, so she they're out of town. The first thing I try to do is fix the car. No avail. Plus, I didn't have any money. So I'm thinking, what can I do to, like, get maximum sympathy from my parents and make them almost forget that I've wrecked my mother's car that I shouldn't have been driving in the first place? So. A classmate had told me that they were hiring <laughs> underage kids at McDonald's. <laughs> so there was a very nice quote-unquote manager there. I go down and get a job. It was totally unimpressive to my parents who grounded me anyway. And now I'm like grounded and I'm stuck working at McDonald's. But I started having a good time. I mean, it was sort of fun. Um, <laughs> we had a very hilarious night manager named Melvin who ultimately absconded with the contents of the safe. But before he did that, he was a pretty heavy drinker and... uh 
he instructed us one night not to serve anybody Coke out of like that far left Coke dispenser. And it turns out he hadn't found a novel way to make himself a bourbon and Coke. So he'd just be cruising through behind the counter. God only knows how many kids or teetotalers or whatever we, we got drunk accidentally. But um, that was it. That was the beginning of my career. And I still love a Big Mac, I'll have you know. Well, as Southern as all your stories are, you just take everybody along with you on this whirlwind world tour that is the life of Julia Reed. We go to Paris. We go to London. We even cruise the Nile. So we go to Afghanistan. Right. When was your first significant trip abroad, and what's your favorite place? Oh, man. It's too hard to pick a favorite place, but... My first trip abroad was to France because I was dying to go when I was like, I was still 14 when that happened. Um, you know, on a study abroad thing. Um, yeah. But when I started working for Newsweek and then for Vogue, you know, I'd go to places that, like I said, I would never have gone on my own. Like, you don't wake up and say, I think I'm going to take a vacation and go on the Trans-Siberian Railway across Russia. Um, but that's a pretty nifty assignment. It was, but, well, no. I mean, there was no, like, shower on the train. It was pretty wow. horrible. And I was going to some women's conference in China, and there were a bunch of German lesbians and French intellectuals, and it was just, you know, it's like, okay, here I am on uh, the train. On the train with them. But it was oh. kind of fun, you know, and, and they, you know, and then I didn't have the right visa, and they dumped me in a forest in Novosibirsk and <laughs> had to make my way back to Moscow, and... In retrospect, those are always the great trips. Of course. <laughs> well, I loved the way you approached this book by dividing it into three sections. And those sections are eating, drinking, and <laughs> making merry. And, of course, the book is filled with all of this very cosmopolitan elegance. And there's chapters entitled, Of Paris and Pins, <laughs> Men and Martinis, <laughs> and, of course, Champagne Charlotte. Mm. But then, Julia... You bring up this concoction called Yucca Flats. <laughs> so, you know, let's leave Paris and let's leave the Pims and just take us to the Yucca Flats. Well, as much as I do love a Pims Cup and a Pims Royale, especially in the Ritz <laughs> Bar in Paris, I have an equally big fondness for a Yucca Flats just because I don't know what made me think about it. I, I was writing a column for Newsweek and I started thinking of summer drinks and how it changes and Everybody starts putting more fruity things, and you switch from dark to light liquor. And I started, it reminded me of the Yucca Flats that I drank at our neighbor's house where I learned all kind of important things in life, like how to play poker and how to hold my beer. And, you know, it was my first experience <laughs> with all the boys in the neighborhood. <laughs> and, um, our neighbor had this huge big playroom, and it had everything that you needed in life, like a pool table, a stereo, a poker table, and, a, you know, an old couch. And... In the summertime, they would the older boys would mix up a yucca flats in a trash can. So I started thinking, I wonder what was in there. I just remembered it being really delicious and like lots of squeezed lemons and limes floating around in there, and some cherries, and God only knows what else, and a lot of ice. So I go online and I realize that like everybody's pretty much lived the same life because there are all these <laughs> things online going, oh yeah, this is great to drink when you're having poker or. Sometimes we mix it with our feet, and it's always in a garbage can. So I'm thinking this is like some international trend. The Yucca Flats, everybody had one at one point or another. Anyway, it's a delicious summer drink. So and I sort of reimagine the recipe. And it's quite a punch bowl. I mean, really. It is. Well, a galvanized trash can is, it's, can be very, very chic, I'll have you know. I have like this whole dream of having a big party 
having nothing but huge garbage cans full of yucca flats to be sort really of reverse chic. Party. I'm telling you. I love that idea. Maybe I'll serve Big Macs alongside. That'd be grand. <laughs> yeah, but just make sure that they're on a silver tray and there's a waiter. Exactly. You? We'll be right back with more outrageous talk with the outspoken Julia Reed. Stay tuned. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? Visit poppytooker.com to listen. While there, you can also subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Conversation with writer Julia Reed continues as we explore why the Mississippi Delta-born former New Yorker chooses to call New Orleans her home. You know, when I was a kid in the Delta, we'd either go north to Memphis or south to New Orleans, depending on how much time we wanted to spend in the car. And New Orleans usually won. You know, it's like mm-hmm. people sort of like, well, if we leave now, we can get to Galatoire's, you know, in time for dinner or whatever. Um I found out that the train from Greenville, Mississippi, my hometown, did not stop until you got to New Orleans. There was no point in going anywhere else in Mississippi. And it was a direct train. That's it was fabulous. like the shuttle. So um, so there's always been an affinity. I mean, you know, we, growing up. And uh, and then I came for Jazz Fest, and I heard myself saying at about 3 o'clock in the morning after a post-Jazz Fest party, oh, yeah, I'm getting an apartment here. And uh, I thought, well, then I guess I should. Yeah. And I did. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. And in your opinion, what do you think is the worst mistake that nervous hostesses often make? Trying too hard, I think. You know, thinking, ooh, I'm having company over and I got to make some really incredibly overwrought, fancy thing. And I went through that when I was a kid and I was like the youngest person at Newsweek in the Washington Bureau. I did know how to cook because I, you know, growing up, as you said, watching my mother and her friends entertain and cooking. So I thought, well, I can impress them with, even though like they actually have bylines and written books and stuff. I'm like, I can, <laughs> I can give a good dinner party. But instead of just sort of cooking a squash casserole or whatever, the first big dinner party I had, I was just drove my mother insane. And I'm calling her up on the phone and it was during... Um, the advent of Nouvelle Cuisine. So in the New York Times in those days, there were all these fussy, complicated, but not actually very good sounding recipes. 
So I was driving Mama crazy on the phone in the days when long distance actually cost money. Uh, like, you know, like, isn't that like, funny? Do you think I should have this or this? And I'm going through all these recipes, and she finally just cut me off and said, "Why don't you just make something that tastes good?" And it sounds silly, but it's not. I mean, I I became a food writer entirely accidentally when I was still writing for Vogue because I had a party for an editor of there who was leaving, and it wasn't my usual crowd, but I had my usual menu, which was like biscuits with country ham on it and a big old bowl of crab meat maison like they make at Galatoire's. That except, never fails, does I know. it? Um, deviled eggs, which apparently nobody had ever seen before because they were like tracing the trays around. And <laughs> These were in the days when in New York, you know, the most popular sort of cocktail party fare was stuff like dried out chicken saute on a stick, which is like so horrible. The next morning, this uh, editor at the Times called me up and said, would you like to write about food? Because they'd never seen anything quite like a stuffed egg, apparently, or a ham biscuit. Well, that was the best party ever then. Good. Congratulations. <laughs> that was quite an accomplishment. But, I mean, it just goes to show you, you know, it's like it really is, you know, have some food that tastes good. I mean, I always, my go-to hors d'oeuvre is things like fried oysters. I mean, what's not to love? Well, in all of this entertaining talk, and I know you give dinner parties and, oh, there's Thanksgiving talk <laughs> in your book, and I have never submitted anybody to, nor have I been submitted to, what you refer to as table talk. Oh, God. Would you explain that table talk <laughs> thing? Well, that chapter is going to ensure that I'm never invited back to a New York dinner party again, which is okay. Um, no, I remember the first time that happened to me. I was at a dinner table at this sort of very famous book agent's house. And her husband was a writer, and, and there were all these sort of hoity-toity folks there. I was sitting next to a federal judge, and Kimba Wood, who had just been <laughs> turned down, as or had to withdraw from being uh, Clinton's attorney general nominee because she had the typical sort of, she'd forgotten to pay her babysitter's taxes, that kind of stuff. But there were all these, you know, sort of tabloid names there. And at one point, you know, we were eating some not very delicious food, and uh, the hostess goes, you know, ding, ding, ding on the glass. And says, okay, table talk. And she actually used the term. And we had to go around the table saying what we each thought about, like, you know, I can't remember now, like the latest Supreme Court nominee or, you know, what's <laughs> going on with the current immigration bill or blah, blah. And instead of having, like, a discussion about that, which would be okay, it was literally like going around, you know, it's like when you're a kid and you have to say what you're thankful for at the table or whatever. Yeah. Um and it gave all these pompous people, you know, sort of a soapbox to stand on and talk endlessly. And it was just sort of, you've got to be kidding me. And then, like, I mean, I was with a couple of good friends, and we hit the nearest bar and had to, like, drink ourselves into oblivion just to get over it. But, <laughs> and then another time I was at a party, same thing happened, and this guy had just come back from the Gaza Strip, and he starts talking about this. And my views on the subject were extremely different from his in the first place. But there was no chance of like having an argument with him because he never shut up. Right. You know, I'd rather be in a place where right after the Gaza Strip evening, I had a party in, at my mother's beach house in Florida. And everybody got in this, like, <laughs> this big political discussion. We started beating one friend of mine on the head with a loaf of bread and stuff. I mean, it was a lot more fun just to have a full-out, good-natured argument. And, you know, yeah. I mean, I just can't imagine anything worse than staged conversation no contrived parties not my cup of tea scripted either. if you have to script your dinner party you need some new friends <laughs> i'll say <laughs> julia reed author of 
but Mama always put vodka in her sangria. Tom Bullitt. I am the founder of Bullet Bourbon. If you've ever considered a career change, you've no doubt heard the same advice. Don't quit your day job till you've got something else lined up. 30 years ago, Tom Bullitt was a lawyer with dreams of becoming an entrepreneur. Well, as I tell young entrepreneurs, if you have a successful business, you're an entrepreneur. If you're not, I probably can't say what you are. Uh, would be inappropriate. So people will say, well, how do I be an entrepreneur? And I say, well, marry someone with a good job. That someone happened to be Betsy, his wife, since 1987. Not long after their nuptials, Tom was able to make the move from practicing law to distilling bullet bourbon. And thanks to its quick rise in popularity, he hasn't looked back since. Today, you can find Bullet's iconic canteen-shaped bottles in bars all over the world. When we spoke with Tom, he explained what propelled him to bite the bullet and pursue a full-time career in whiskey. I think it all began when I was working between school terms. I would work either for family or for friends or in, in Louisville or Bardstown at the distilleries and really fell in love with the business at that point. Always wanted to do it. And after I finished the University of Kentucky, after some years, my father, who went to Notre Dame, uh, said to me, Tom, your undergraduate work has been abysmal. And it was so abysmal, I didn't know what the word meant. I said, thanks, Dad. Uh, I I said, I'm I'm going to be a master distiller. He said, you'll be going in the military like everyone else, and then you will be a lawyer. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. So after some training, core school, field medical school. I'm off to Vietnam with the 1st Marine Division in 1967-68. Wow. And how did that shape your future? Well, I think it shaped my future dramatically. In in one way, I was an undisciplined undergraduate, and I did go to law school afterwards and was was a good law student. And what made you decide in 1987 to take this big shift in life? Well, I really wanted to do this all of my life. Our family's been in and out of the business for six generations, and it just sort of ripened at that time. Tell me a little bit about how you learned about your great-great-grandfather, how that inspired you, and who Augustus Bullitt really was. We know some about him. A lot of the history is oral history. We know that he immigrated from France, came to New Orleans here in the early 1800s, lived here for a while, and then traveled up the Mississippi and the Ohio rivers to the Louisville area of Kentucky, distilled between maybe 1830 and 1860. And then ultimately, maybe a couple times a year, he would bring barrels down those rivers. Of course, he spoke French and had commercial contacts here. And would sell, age it by the mile. I guess when he got it here, they would sell it. Then travel back to Kentucky, which would have been a various arduous journey during yes. that period of our history. And and in 1860, he did not return. 
Yes. He came to New Orleans, but he didn't make it back. We don't know how far he made it. He could have made it to Memphis. He could have made it to Natchez. Could have turned the wrong way and gone to St. Louis. We, we, you know, you just don't know. But we know he didn't return. And he had five children. I am descended of one of those children, John Joseph, descended of one of those children, and passed down from Augustus to John Joseph to F.A., my grandfather, Francis Aim, Aim Bullet. Needless to say, that did not survive to the next generation. Thomas, my father, and then Thomas, me, and the kids, the six generations. If one was to drink Bullet Bourbon today... What might they taste of your great-great-grandfather in it? Well, I think what they would taste is that it is bourbon. I think the bourbons would have been similar. Particularly, we, we make a cast-strength bourbon, which is barrel strength. And his bourbon would have been like that. It would, it would not have been anywhere near as sophisticated, obviously. He would not have been able to control. That would have been a similar process, but he would not have been able to control the process like we can today and control the consistency. But I think it would have, he would have used similar grains. He would not have aged it very long. Uh, the color would have come from the barrel, the same thing. They would have been charred because they may have shipped fish to Kentucky, and they would burn that out. Those really the containers, the shipping containers of that era were barrels. I would presume that ours would be tastier, shall I say. Tom, what is your favorite way to drink your whiskey? My dad and I would probably drink, sit on the patio. He would lay a lay a stone patio in the back of the house. That's when back in the era when dads knew how to do things. I don't. We would sit there and maybe um, have bourbon on the rocks. Water is to whiskey as oxygen is to wine. Ice, the same thing. It's going to open it up. Mother would drink a highball, which is add water to the bourbon and, and on the rocks. My aunt was a Catholic nun. She drank it straight. I guess she gave, her, <laughs> gave herself a dispensation, I guess. I don't know. And then the cocktail culture, which has been an, a, a huge growth driver for our brand, is, which is really a cult brand on premises. I've probably tried thousands of cocktails over the years, and I've never had one that I didn't think was tasted good and was well made. My wife drinks BLTs. Betsy drinks bullet bourbon, a little lemon, like a wedge of lemon we throw in our iced teas, and tonic, which you wouldn't think to put together and is a delicious drink. It's very nice. If you were to sit down today with your great-great-grandfather, what do you suppose the two of you would have to talk about? Well, I think we, I would ask him, I would say, well, why didn't you come home? <laughs> I think That would be the so, first question. So, <laughs> where, where have you been? It's okay to come back. Now, I would be speaking as one of his descendants. I'm not sure if his, if his wife would ask the same question. She may say, well, we've missed you some. <laughs> so, so I think we would have a nice conversation about making whiskey and, and what, a, what a great tradition that had been. If you reflect... In 1800, there were 2,000 stills in Kentucky. It was a function of our agrarian society. If you grew grains, you would feed the family, feed the livestock, and the grains would either rot or you'd make whiskey. So it was really a function of daily life at that point. I think he would obviously be amazed to see how the industry has evolved with something that really started as a basic element of farming. Since 1987 until today, what are the things that have surprised you about the industry, about what you've seen. Have you had any moments where you've said, oh, 
Really? Now? Well, I, th- I think, w- well, lots of those moments. I think, for instance, when I brought Augustus's recipe back in 1987, that was in the middle of the, the vodka craze. I mean, w- b- bourbons were dramatically in the decline. At that point, scotches had usually been sold as blends, but then all of a sudden in the late 80s, early 90s, into the mid-90s, they started marketing single malts. And straight bourbons are essentially single malts. So everybody really sort of upped their game at that point in the American brown goods distilling industry. I think we all have been, from Jimmy Russell to Elmer T. Lee and all of the great giants, some of whom have passed now, like Lincoln Henderson and and Bill Samuels, my dear friend Bill Samuels. I think we were all surprised at how bourbons have come back. I think certainly in my life, surprises have been really the function that I'm not dead yet, and I've fallen uphill a lot. When we got together with Seagram's, when we partnered with Seagram's, and then when our current partner, Diageo, is a wonderful company, bought a lot of Seagram's, and and we're with them now. So I think think that. I I think... um, some some of the moments I don't have to tell Betsy. My wife is a, a financial advisor, stockbroker. She tells me to say financial advisor. But I remember her asking me about every three months. She would say, now, Tom, tell me, tell me again how this is all going to work. I've calculated that it will take you practicing law until you're 117 and a half. Just pay the interest on the loans here. So, so I don't have to... I don't have to answer that anymore, which is nice. That's that's grand. So many people in this industry got caught by surprise with the craze for rye whiskey. Tell me about why rye whiskey is so identifiable with Bullet. Well, for a couple of reasons. We have grown with the cocktail movement. I call these uh, bartenders and the mixologists our partners in chemistry. One of the, the philosophy of our brands is to defer to them. I want to respond to them. We make straight-aged bourbons and ryes. And our, rye, our bourbon whiskey, my great-great-grandfather's recipe that I brought back, was two-thirds corn, one-third rye. And, and that's about maybe twice plus as much rye as any of the other bourbons. So our San Francisco bartenders love that product, and they said, Tom, we see rye coming on because a lot of the old cocktails call for rye whiskey. You've got a big footprint in your bourbon with the rye recipe. Why don't, why don't you bring us a full rye? And uh, that's exactly what we did. We started early on, and then in 2011 brought out our, our rye whiskey, uh, which is 95% rye, 5% malted barley. It's a great... Well, now it has become the, really the definitive product in, in the category. I think we have maybe a half, maybe a 50% market share. The turn of the cent, 2003, 4, 5, we, we started that project very seriously. It was almost like a hot tip from the bartenders and, and made, made a good amount of rise. So we were, and I think that certainly attributes to some of our growth, we were able to stay in stock and, and, uh, and, and it's a great product at a good price. If you were to take the long look with the way that spirits change and tastes change, what do you think the future of bourbon is? I think, it, I think the future is bright. It's one of the baseline categories. When you mix a drink with bourbon, you configure it so it pushes forward what is there and enhances what is there. You live in the world of dining, of 
everything from pretty good to fine dining, and it would be like saying, "Well, do you think do you, do you think wine is a phase?" Well, it's wine is here to stay, obviously, and I think the cocktail culture and and it's is here to stay, and the bourbon industry will uh, be a component of that always. Tom Bullet, founder of Bullet Bourbon. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find our full broadcasts, along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from the Bourbon House. From oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eat studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.